0: songwriter. We had the opportunity to talk to Paul of Polo and Pan over Zoom video. Paul talked to us about where he grew up and how he got into music. He has this fascinating story about how there's a photograph of both of his grandparents on each side of his family. There's a picture of his grandfather on his dad's side of the family with his dad when he was one and his grandmother on his mom's side of the family, pregnant with his mom. And then obviously 20 some years later, they meet and... (laughs) They ended up having, having Paul. He tells us how he got into music. He actually went to school for business. He had a job at Microsoft. And uh, DJing and electronic music has always been a passion of his since he was about 17, 18 years old when he got his first computer and started writing electronic music. He tells us how he kind of got in the door at some of these clubs that he was able to DJ early on. How him and his friends rented this massive industrial like building and they built apartments in there, and they used to hold these huge parties, these 36-hour raves and, and techno parties. <laughs> so these these crazy stories there, um, how he met Alex, the other half of Polone Pan, and how this project really started. He also talked to us about playing Cross Festival in San Diego, their set at Coachella in 2019, and how they kind of needed this downtime over the past year and a half to really put together this new record that just came out, which is called Cyclorama. You can watch our interview with Paul of Polo and Pan on our YouTube channel and Facebook page at Bringing It Backwards. It'd be incredible if you subscribe to our YouTube channel and, of course, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod.
1: We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: We're Bringing It Backwards with Polo and Pan. Um, Our podcast is all about you, your journey in music. And we'll talk about the new record you guys have coming out in about what 10 days from now. And
1: uh, uh huh. Yeah, exactly. Coming out in 10 days for sure.
0: Yeah, very cool. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you so much for doing this. So, uh, first off, where were you born and raised?
1: Uh, I was born in uh, Normandy. My mom is American, she's from New Jersey. My dad is French, quarter British, quarter American. So, I'm quite like the Anglo Saxon family, but brought <laughs> up on a farm in Normandy. My dad, uh, went to Harvard and then uh, took over the family farm. So he's more like a educated farmer, let's say the farmer gentleman. Yeah, wow. And uh, voila, my mom is a, a typical, yeah, she's like fr- from New Jersey, but she went to Woodstock. She went, she had all, all this like musical background. She, uh, she saw The Doors in New York in 69. Yeah, so she gave me a lot of this interest for uh, musical culture in general.
0: That's insane, that's amazing. Uh, did your parents meet when your dad was at Harvard? Uh, yeah
1: they they met um they met at a party in in New York. I think my dad was at Harvard at that moment, and but they met in New York. And funny story is that uh, my my mom's uh, parents came to Paris in the fifties after the war for the Marshall Plan, and uh, my grandfather was part of the Marshall Plan, and my grandmother was at uh, Beaux Arts. She was studying um, art sculpture in Paris. Oh, wow. And back then they met the, my family, my French family, and they were invited to the country house of my family. And there's a picture of my grandfather with my dad that's one years old and my gr- American grandmother with my, she's pregnant. So they met, they met like at that moment. Wow. My, and then 23 years later, they met in New York.
0: That's fascinating. That's just, that's so incredible. So you guys, you obviously have that picture.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's great. Like when my when my mom met my dad, she came back to her family and said, "I met this guy, Frédéric Armel And her family were like, "Wow, that's amazing! Like, go for it. He's got this beautiful house in France, and like, he's he seems like his his father seems like a great person." But anyways, like our fa- our families were a bit interconnected like that. And um,
0: fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Wow. 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 That's so cool. Um, and then you you said you were born um, in, in Norm- Normandy. In Normandy. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: In Normandy. And I was there for a few years. My parents, it sounded like a, a perfect uh, happy end story, but my parents got divorced when I was 11. So then I moved with my mom to the suburbs of Paris. I was in this little small town, like 30,000 uh, person town called Saint-Liz. Okay. And when I was 18, I, I moved uh, to Paris back with my dad and started my studies in, in business.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I was going to yeah. ask you if, uh, if, uh, education was, was a big thing. I mean, considering your dad went to Harvard, I don't know if they pushed that. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, there's a lot of academic pressure. My, my sister is a bit of an overachiever. She speaks nine languages, works for Google and like, you know, she was straight. <laughs> oh and wow. I wasn't, like I was, I wasn't a straight A student. So, um, but, uh, I kind of got by and no, I got to like a, like around when I was 17, 16, I was really not motivated anymore. And like, I I, I kind of found music the summer I finished high school. And uh, I was starting this Ecole uh, de Commerce. We start, we, you can you start business schools earlier. Like, we call it business school, but you started, it was college. It was kind of a college, college moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I listened to Moon Safari that summer. I was smoking my, my first joints and like kind of like all glued together. I was like, shit, sure. this is amazing. Like, how do they do this music? Like, how can I, you know? I got really interested and fascinated by it. Never thought I could make a career in music, but that's like, the, it started from there. I, I I got a computer, I got a bit of software. I bought some turntables and was, yeah, I started going out in Paris, going to like uh, parties and discovering the electronic music scene, the club music scene also. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it really it, music became my whole life. Wow. And, and, music and, and, music. and weed, of course. <laughs> quite intertwined not so much anymore but and i never thought like the music would survive the weed i really thought they were completely gelled together but actually yeah now like i don't i don't need them i i write i write sober all the time and like you mm-hmm. know i like i can enjoy a little a, a little something once in a while when i'm partying but it's not part of my my uh, my process
0: that's amazing um well prior to to getting the software on a computer and, and really focusing on electronic music were you ever in piano lessons or did your did you do anything uh, yeah, else so, musically yeah. prior
1: to that my, so my dad is a great guitarist and he can play Bach and he can play like he's a really amazing guitarist so was my wow. grandfather so I uh and he spent some time in Brazil he can play some really nice South American music and stuff but anyways I I did I did some when I was seven first we did so I did some uh, solfege just like the I never played the instrument for some reason. The teacher was like, he has to do one year of education, like learning the theory before he plays an instrument, which is really weird. And so I did one year of solfege, and then I think I quit. I got tired of it. <laughs> but then when I was 13, I did one year or two of classical guitar, which I'm glad I, I really got it, glad I, did. I never got that good back then. but And I still am not a great guitarist, but just yesterday I was still – deciphering some bossa nova and i'm still working on my guitar and i enjoy it and and now um i'm i'm self-educated myself over the past five years of piano okay and i think the the bit of theory i got like now i really like i study theory a lot and now it's i'm i'm working on my instruments right now like my goal is to be able to just like jam away you know like by the time i'm 60 and actually <laughs> do, do do some real music at some point
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure that kind of comes into play with your even with your music now, right? Would do you use any of that theory when you're when you're writing songs now?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I use a lot of the theory. I played on Canopy. I, uh, that's the, when the first time I grabbed my guitar and like recorded something that that guitar riff, that Bossa Nova riff. Oh, so
2: really? So that
1: that was an important. Yeah, that's an an important. It's like the only riff. Like I can't play ten thousand things, but that I could play where well. I kind of nailed that groove down. Uh-huh. So. Um, so I use that, and yeah, I've recorded a bit of quite a bit of guitar and pull on Pen, but I'm not. I wouldn't. Perf- I don't perform live with my guitar that much, just because it's not relevant. It's only a few songs in the in the show, and I'm not. I can't nail it every time, you know. I'm not that kind of guitarist who's really like you know working on his instrument at that level. But um, I'd love to do an unplugged session for pull on Pen one day and like really
0: just play more instruments. That'd be really cool, yeah, I yeah. was watching your live sets from like a cross festival. I'm from San Diego, so th- I watched okay. your set from Cross, which is so dope, Yeah, and a little super bit of fun. and a little bit of your Coachella fest uh, your Coachella set um as well, and I was thinking like if you threw guitar in it might be a little <laughs> you're like, okay, hang on, let me go grab this guitar for like two songs yeah, and put it in you know it doesn't really <laughs> exactly like some
1: some bands can do it, but we're the way we configured our live show, it's not about music, musicianship. It is about performance. Sometimes you yeah. perform some stuff, but it's not like, wow, they're like, they got these amazing solos. No, it's like, wow, they have a great show. They have the, the mm-hmm. energy is there. It's about oh, yeah. fun and communication and it's engaging. And we, that's exactly what we try to, we don't try to play every part. We just try to play specific parts where people can understand. Because when you have all these like MIDI controls and stuff, a lot of the time people don't even know what you're doing. You know, like mm-hmm. the tweaking buttons and like, so we try to make it very simple and digestible and like uh, relatable for the, for the audience. Yeah.
0: I love that, that you said uh, engaging. Cause I've, that's exactly what I felt when I was watching your show. Cause I mean, sometimes in electronic music, like you said, people don't really know what's going on. They might think, no. Oh, he's just pushing some buttons, but no, there's really like you're orchestrating everything that's happening, but the way that you have the mic and you're up there talking and you're really engaging the crowd. I, I Exa- love that. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really, uh, well, I, I owe a lot to Alex for that because Alex is the extrovert in the band and he's the crowd pleaser. He's really connected to the crowd and I'm, I'm a little more internal and I'm pursuing like personal goals sometimes with music. And this show, a lot of the direction comes from him. And uh, this is like, we're, we're smart in the way that we, we let each other lead when we're, we feel naturally the other one has something to, to give. And um, yeah, he, sa- he said like, really, this is not about you. Let's just do something easy we're not going to don't over challenge yourself. We're not like the best musicians in the world. So let's just make this fun for the audience. And then we can build on that and become better musicians. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been adding more and more stuff in the show, the show like at the end, by the end of the tour was becoming, yeah, we're playing more and more parts, but um, it's always the reference, the point of reference is the, is the audience and it's got to be about them. And uh, yeah, there's so many ways with electronic music to bring a show, like to perform the music that, uh, picking them as the the point of reference instead of us is a, is was i thought was a smart wise decision like good
0: angle mm-hmm. no definitely definitely um i want to go back to when you got this computer and and uh started making music you said you're i mean that's you started a little bit late if if you're in college uh-huh. kind of the beginning of college uh once like how did you even start like you get the computer and the program did you, was it all self-taught like how did you learn to program uh- beats and
1: it's a software uh, that some of your audience might know called EJ, like sounds very 2000.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> and
1: uh, so it was, a, it was a sample, it was a software. It had like a sequencer, but it was loaded with samples. So you just like you had beats and bass lines and this and that. And so I used just like all the preset samples to make kind of house music tracks, like or something, you know, like 120 BPM.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then they had a sample pack. So I started buying sample packs and for maybe three or four years, I didn't record anything. I didn't produce anything. I was just messing around with samples, smoking, like smoking. Mm-hmm. But I remember my best friend back then, Olivier, who um, we were really passionate about air, and like he was big into classical music too. And I thought I might do like I wanted to create something with him. But yeah, on one of our first songs, we actually did record. He played the clarinet, so we recorded the, the clarinet, and we made this pretty cool song. Like in the, we were trying to emulate some of Moon Safari, some stuff like that. I really didn't. Uh, quite hit the spot but um so yeah yeah no no there was there was already a bit of recording but then i kind of put that aside and like was doing samples for two years after that and mm-hmm. uh, it took a long time until i actually started really yeah actually like I, it's it's also the the way i saw it i was i was entertaining myself i was having fun i was still like very adolescent in my energy and it was it was i wasn't projecting myself as this being anything more than just me having a great time mm-hmm and it was very personal and like for my friends and are like they they would enjoy the beats and so on but i never thought of marketing it selling it i never thought i could make a living out of it i wasn't even i wasn't djing back then for money so it was very yeah it was just me like but creating a universe already like the i did like 800 songs maybe you know like, a, like a, of that like there's so much production i mix albums together But it was for, it was just, you know, like I had so, I was super productive, but it was also Mm -hmm. pretty easy just like, you know, taking samples together.
0: Mm -hmm. But it was all for yourself. When did you start sharing that aside from with your friends? Like, when did you like attempt to, to, you know, start performing your own songs as far as like in a party setting?
1: Uh, I never performed those songs and I started performing more as a DJ. Let me try to figure it out because I remember writing those CDs and like handing them out to a couple DJs I back then I really like uh, Hotel Cost. I don't know if you know those compilations Hotel Coste from Stephen Pompinac but it's a it's a hotel in Paris that, that released these uh these lounge compilations which were actually oh, cool. really really good there's there were some really bad ones but they kind of set the tone for that and so I went to Hotel Cost and I pushed the door and I met the DJs there and I started I was playing all vinyl there there mm-hmm. And I started playing vinyl, and yeah, it's this is a pretty foggy moment of my life because I was just like smoking all the time. I have to try to remember the moment where I actually started DJing and making money was probably much much further down the down the way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's more this is like 2000 to 2005 until I graduated. I was just kind of messing around, but always just listening to music and doing music. Mm-hmm. But um, not very, se- not in a very serious way. I wasn't. I didn't have many financial. I didn't really have the financial resources to invest in the studio. If I if I had, I would have done it immediately.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was working. Oh, okay, yeah, I was working summers in a summer camp in the U.S. in New Hampshire. Okay. And I picked up guitar there for the, like really serious. I started playing a lot. That's. Uh, summer with some friends and that was that was already an interesting part where I, I really learned how to read chords play chords so i started building all these these new skills let's say and mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah that brings us to um let me think because what happened is around i i at the when i graduated i worked for a uh, my last internship was for a, an electronic music label called Versatile Records.
0: Oh, cool. So you went right into music though. It wasn't like you were working some totally different career. Uh, the, the brother, the
1: big brother, my my girlfriend back then worked for Versatile Records
0: and he was an intern
1: there and he said like, you should take this internship. He was a DJ too. Okay. And, and so, but also a bedroom DJ. And anyways, I did that. That was a really interesting experience. Uh, kind of meeting people from the from the scene and also seeing what it is actually to uh, this Versatile is a real legit label mm-hmm. and uh, Gilbert is an amazing guy. But yeah, I also yeah, it was just uh, an interesting experience. But it still, it still wasn't that. At the end of that, I moved on to work for Microsoft. Oh wow! <laughs> so yeah, I thought I was going to be swallowed by the the big machine. You know, like just go into the system. Yeah. And, um, okay, this, yeah, this is when there's an intense moment in my life when I went to the U S and, uh, I was really upset about this. I just broke up with that girlfriend too. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, being in my country house, my, my grandparents house in, in, uh, far hills, New Jersey, it was snowing outside, walking out and, um, having a, a real epic moment where I was, cr- I was crying. I was super so depressed. And I, I had this prayer. I was like, God, I hadn't prayed like maybe in 15 years. I was like, God, like. I really wanna do music, but now I'm like, uh, my path is like, I'm being swallowed by the machine and like, I'm, I'll give my life to, to music, but, and to you, I want to do something, but uh, like, help me do this. And interestingly, the same day, I found the, the Lawrence of Arabia DVD and Paulo Coelho's book, uh, uh, The Alchemist, in my, in my bedside table. So I kind of like looked at those things and I was like, wow, these are amazing. It kind of sounds like an answer, Mm -hmm. And the alchemist especially was like, you have to look at the signs of life. Signs are going to appear if, when you want to find the universe is trying to help you do what you want to do. And so about two weeks later, I went back to Paris and I met, um, I met this person who came to me and it was a girl, but she just, you know, she kind of had this, this message for me. And said like, I started recording music with her. Basically I was working for Microsoft, but she would stay at my place and she's like, you got to do the guitar. Like it was, it was exactly kind of this direct answer so wow it was a bit like a guardian angel kind of presence this girl i saw for two months kind of disappeared she i never saw her again like her phone disappeared so it was quite kind of a mystical experience and after that i was on fire like i started meeting a lot of people going out i was playing the guitar everywhere in the in paris like on the on the streets like i don't know it really had this kind of like like interesting moments and that was like mm-hmm. one of the yeah craziest like for two three months in my life where like shit was happening all the time crazy energy meeting people and that's when I started going to Le Baron the club where I met Alex like maybe five or six years later the, mm-hmm. so um Le Baron was opening and I would play guitar in the entrance of this club every night and I'd have people s- s- sing like the Rolling Stones Beatles like do covers of like old songs and um and yeah so yeah yeah and then I met this girl Nina Lily J with whom I I wrote her a first song and we recorded a few years later we recorded my first album under the moniker Open Space and Stars and that's kind of like a 60s energy record and it's still it's still uh, online it's the album's called Pop Prophecy I was listening to it like just a, a week ago with some friends and like, yeah, it's got, it's not, it's not quite there, but it's got some interesting ideas. It still holds up. <laughs> it, uh, a couple of songs uh, hold up. I like Tarot divine. Like one of these songs, one of the songs, Tarot divine.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Like I told you about this really crazy girl who came, like, who, like kind of energized me and she gave me this game of tarot. One of the first things she, she taught me how to read tarot and she gave me a game of tarot. She was super mystical. She was like on another level. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so I wrote this song, like, um i just flipped over the major arcans and major cards of the tarot and wrote in the order of the cards wow and that, and that song kind of holds up yeah that's kind of cool concept and like mm-hmm. the song is the song's pretty cool it's got an oriental energy and it's called tarot divine and um yeah anyways like at that moment 2010 i had been djing a bit for like kind of uh not so cool clubs i was making money i was i was I finished microsoft i oh yeah i i skipped the part where i went to san francisco so yeah there's a it's a it's a complex uh, life trajectory but uh so 2005 2006 i get this crazy energy i started playing the guitar a lot mm-hmm. in 2007 i'm working for microsoft and at the end of the internship my boss says hey uh you should do music you're a great you're a great intern i love you but like you don't do this stop do stop this go do some music <laughs> and i got really lucky once again i met uh, an old, a f- a friend like a uh, old friend who uh said hey you know what like this company called mix vibes they're a dj software company and they're looking for a guy with an american passport to develop the us market so i was like wow this sounds kind of like you know like i got microsoft i got music passion i've mm-hmm. got the American passport." So I went to the the interview and we did this special contract where uh, supported by the French government. I had the idea of this contract called VU. It's it's, instead of doing a military service, it's kind of developing strategic um, businesses, French businesses abroad. So they, they support you. It was very cheap for the company, in other words, to send me. And I got a great salary. I was living in San Francisco. I was alone, no presence and no visit ever of the company that sent me over the year and a half I spent there. (laughs) And I had this big office downtown San Francisco and I was making three K a year. My first, my first salary. So three K a month. So I was like, wow, this is,
2: I kind of was like,
1: wow, so cool. Yeah. And I had, I had a blast there. I met some really good friends. Uh, and, um, basically i was working the morning i was doing some cold calling developing the business i was never a great salesman but i was pretty good at marketing and in selling the product since i was very enthusiastic about djing
2: mm-hmm. and
1: afternoons i was just like producing music in this big office i had turntables i had all the gear sent by the partners and um, and i started writing a lot of songs and and I started DJing a lot. Also, I was this French DJ. It was the justice period. So I had like this, you know, this kind of like glamour around me. And sure. whereas in Paris, like, you know, just scoring a couple, few gigs in San Francisco, I kind of developed an image. That's and awesome. then when I, when I came back a year and a half later, I had the image of DJing in San Francisco. So
0: like, oh, it kind I of worked both ways for
1: you. Exa- exactly. Exactly. People They always want what's, you know, like a bit exotic and foreign. So Anyways, when I, I came back around 2008 and I had these songs and I wrote the first song for Whitney and J in 2006 called Hey Little Girl, which is on the album. Mm-hmm. But I had these bunch of songs and we, and once again, through another external contact, just this guy said, oh, my dad is a cinema producer, but he loves Hey Little Girl and he wants to produce her album. He's going to put like a little bit of money, 4K. And I had a friend, Alexandre, who was uh, who had this great studio, who really liked me and like our, our group of friends. And he said, "Sure, I'll I will make your record for this price." And we did this first album, which is very imperfect. But you know, I never I was never able to turn this into a big live performance. I was, but it, it was so yes, so improbable. The struggle to, to get there was like a really big deal already to be able to make a record. Mm-hmm. play one or play a couple of shows we played at the can film festival for like a wow. private show a couple of things like this and i got a band together because i recorded the album kind of alone and with alex but then i had to recruit a professional drummer and bassist. so like i learned some stuff about the business but um nearly signed with a big label finally that then that fell through so that's all up to 2010 and that's when I start I, I went to Greg, who was the booker at Le Baron and said, Hey man, you know, like I'm DJing all these medium clubs in Paris. I love what's happening in Le Baron. I've been playing guitar here for a few years. It's really like it's it was so in, uh, full of energy and like it was really an amazing place. And um, and so he said, Yeah, sure, I'll I'll give it, you know, he he I'll give you a shot. And I had the first DJ set, then a few more, and then I became a resident at Le baron Mm -hmm. and um yeah that was i guess a really big deal a really really big deal since uh that was 2010 and i met alex two years later and um i must say at that time 2010 so this is also the moment where i left paris and i moved in to a factory outside of uh paris in the in the north with some friends we took over an industrial warehouse and my friend and we moved into this forty thousand square uh, feet space, which <laughs> was which was industrial. And we made apartments. We like brought like like giant bathtubs and like drapes and like made some really like amazing kind of. We were yeah we it was it was crazy. There was a lot of lot of energy. My friend Anatol is very he's British. He's very young, but he. He's a very uh, romantic and crazy soul. And, like, you know, Mm -hmm. he bought this big white limousine for 2000 euros that he found from a guy and fixed the limousine. So we had a limo. (laughs) Like, you know, it's like crazy, crazy lifestyle. (laughs) And um, yeah, no. And we started throwing parties there. We would have like every two weeks, 3,000 people come and throw the biggest techno parties and make a shitload of cash to, uh, to, to fuel the space. I was going to ask, and so, and you had to have
0: parties there. Those, When you said you had a 4,000, or you said 4,000?
1: 3,000 was the max we had, but it was like 2,000 to 3,000. And yeah. when you had it that was
0: space, par- I'm like, you got to be having some parties. There. <laughs> and it was a
1: party that started uh, like Saturday night, uh, Saturday night and finished Monday morning sometimes. Like they had these tech, like <laughs> it was La Concrète. It was a moment where techno was blowing up like mm-hmm. after being down for 10 or 15 years, it was blowing up. And there was uh, this team called Le Conquete. We, we partnered with us and they would have like yeah, 36 hour parties. So oh it my took God. a little, t- it did take a little toll on us. Cause it's quite, un- you know, like unsettling to have a 36 hour party at your place. Every, every other week. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, yeah. But yeah. So there was some, you know, always some good stuff, but it's also, you know, it's, it was a dangerous lifestyle, you know, like you have no boundaries, mm-hmm. all the temptations, You have big apartments above a party where there's like three thousand people, and they want to go after party and like you know, whatever. So we. uh, But yeah, that's at that moment I met Alex. I remember Alex and I go. We were watching Ben Clock play in the warehouse. uh, Who's like he's a massive DJ from where from uh, Berlin from from Berlin, Mm -hmm. just killing it, killing it. But at two p.m. at like broad daylight outside, and it's just a fucking. Banging techno party that's been going on already for like twenty hours. Yeah, and uh, (laughs) we're like, yes, like it was, it was so good. It was right, right as we were starting to record the like during the live stuff. So yeah, it's 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 hard. Like one day maybe I'll I'll sit down and try to try to write it because there's a lot of layers to all this, this build up, and it you know it's yeah, it's uh yeah yeah I guess it's just like the energy, the energy and the, the passion just, you know, made me like keep on looking and looking until I found something that, that, that came together and worked. And I just, I just really wanted it. And uh, when I met Alex, I was already, um, 32 and we started project when I was 33. So, you know, uh, by that time my parents were like, Hey, like, uh, what, uh, what the fuck is up? <laughs> what are you doing? What, what are you doing? And, uh,
0: You're Like throwing 36 hour parties. What do you think I'm doing? Yeah. I was, I was really, sh- <laughs> I
1: wasn't really sure myself. I, mean, I had some, um, yeah, there were some ups and downs, but I, I say since, since the, since we started Paul and Penn, it's really be a professional like up and it's been quite linear, but it's just, you know, it's been going in great direction and, It's uh, I'm glad I have all this experience before it, you know, great. I'm grateful for it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you, I didn't get it for free. I didn't get it too young. I have the experience. I respect what, you know, like all the energy. And so, yeah, we're very respectful of what we have. Alex also did a lot of stuff before Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, building a duo, a lot of duos I know like have a hard, have a, they can have a hard time, especially after we've passed the seven year gap and now we're into our eighth year. And uh, you got those, these milestones, the three years, the seven years and a couple and so on. And um, we're doing, we're doing fine. Like we, we've evolved and we have our, we're different also, but we have a, this great relationship and this great project that's, uh, that's kind of bigger than us and we respect that.
0: Yeah. I was curious. Cause I mean, you both had a fan base, right? So was it putting it together? Did people were, people must've been aware that you guys were together. Did that kind of create a little bit of buzz as well? Mm-hmm. We didn't
1: have that much of a fan base. We had a following, but my following was my friends. And by the time I was 33, they were really partied out. They were starting, you know, I was starting to be like, okay. I was known in Paris, but by a generation that was kind of like dying off, you know, like they were So it was also, we really started fresh. I mean, our crew of DJs loved Revolta and started playing it, but it was instantaneously. It kind of got in the, like the French hype and. It was immediately, it wasn't like uh, our, just our friends or like, you know, like our local crew supporting us, but we got some support from like the Corsicans loved it. Like we played in Calvian Corsica and like, yeah, it kind of spread out. We got some good articles and um, so we didn't build, I think we, we, I had built on, on my friend on like on that, that network for a long time, but it was, it was definitely dying off at that moment.
0: Okay. And then you had to like pretty much rebuild it, right? Rebuild it up.
1: And yeah, it's just like, it's new people. It's people like the fans and the people who enjoy Pan. Of course, all my friends like gave me a call afterwards. and like, wow, it's, it's amazing. But um, yeah. it's just, it was new. It was new people. It's a different way. Like, you know, when you're this kind of, you can be a DJ who, who plays uh, local parties. Like when I was in San Francisco, I play in the mission, this and that, and you post and you have your friends get excited and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. but it's different on pan is just you know we communicated it's we had a label we had a structure it was it was much more structured it was it was different it didn't feel the same at all and but le baron was just finished right, right then so we didn't have a resident club in paris anymore we started playing cities around france we played only places we mostly places we had never played before mm-hmm. and um yeah we started playing instead of being in a resident DJ network, we were in a touring band, band network or like touring DJ network.
0: Was that different than anything? Like, had you toured prior to that? Or is it like you said, just resident DJ stuff?
1: Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I had not toured. I had not toured with my previous uh, band, Open Space and Stars. I also created a project in 2012, right before Poland Pan. I went to record in Morocco with uh, Kanawa musicians. It's like, it's mystical music. And that's one of the projects I came back with and when Alex and the DJs at Le baron saw that I did that I kind of you know like that kind of created that was part of what created the interest I think of Alex he was like wow like um, I was progressing on my pro- on my production and also on my level of co- being able to collaborate record other people and just make a cool record you should definitely check that out the records called the Wuden four three four rudani r-o-u-d-a-n-i and the the band is called the atlas collective and um that's a record i'm i'm, I'm really uh, proud of but anyways that was uh, we were talking about touring that wasn't touring but that was traveling to record so i was already experimenting also a lot with my friends since i moved in the factory we were breaking the formats and trying to do things differently and trying to mm-hmm. work between us and like you know we were already uh just leaving Paris and like living this lifestyle. I was um, I was already kind of leaving this redis- resident. I knew I couldn't be a resident DJ much longer. It was mm-hmm. it wasn't fun. It was a generational thing we had a blast, but after you had a blast for 10 years, you're kind of you know you gotta
0: you feel like you need something new. Sure. So pull and pan is when you really decided, hey, this is this is gonna be a career. We need some longevity here. Let's let's really focus on making I mean this- I would-
1: I was collaborating with a bunch of people
2: mm-hmm.
0: and
1: out of these collaborations, just the one with Alex, like it felt right. And people were super interested in it right away. And they like, we, so we had this song and they're like, you should choose a name. You know, like we had we weren't thinking, okay, let's start a band. You know, it's like, you guys are a band that we want to sign or do something with. What's your name? So, oh, so we went wow. for something simple and like, you know, DJ Peter Pan and DJ Polo Corp. And it just became Polo and Pan. Mm-hmm. It had a nice ring to it too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we just had Noemi and Benjamin, who are the guys who, who do all our visuals and did our, our first, uh, our first jackets for the first EP. Mm-hmm. Um, they were DJs at Le Baron also. Oh, wow. So we were all resident DJs together. They created, mm-hmm. they went on to create this application called radio, radio with five O's radio.com. It's an uh-huh. app and it's a big world map with decennials. And you can pick to, you could pick a country and a decennial like uh brazil 60s or you can go listen to afghanistan in the 30, 30s or you know like russia in the 40s and see what's happened with a great create created place so so these are also very ambitious and kind of crazy like you know creative people
0: uh-huh.
1: and um yeah we had the, the the team the team was kind of there was building itself up from all the previous work and. Kind of like things came to fruition, like it was all ripe, and then like things, ju- yeah, just started working, and Poland Pan was ready to to activate.
0: Yeah! Wow, that's cool. What an incredible app! That's fascinating to find out what 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 music was happening in all around the world in certain yeah. time periods. Oh my gosh! Yeah.
1: So Revolta, our first song is a it's a sample from uh, Italian forties from Italy, and. Um, and we were class. Alex was working is a partner in radio, and he was classifying a lot of music. And he brought a few samples. Like I like this song. I like this song. I was like, okay, oh, I like this. Let's sample it. And that's how we started Revolta. So, it's all intertwined.
0: Interesting. That's that's yeah. that's really cool. That's really fascinating. I've never even heard of something like that. Like, how would you even? how would you even know what was happening in, in Afghanistan in the thirties? You know what I mean? Like to be able to, to pull those type of music, like that's, that's really incredible. Um, Yeah. I'm sorry. I got, I got a call, but I just, (laughs) (laughs) um, so, so what was the first, You talked about like the three year, three year milestone and then, you know, seven year, what was the first like big milestone for, for and pan?
1: um, no, but I guess along the the road, like we, it's as I say, it's pretty linear and pretty progressive. But the album obviously was a big. Making our our first album was yeah, it's quite a challenge, and uh, we're lucky because we released this the great EP Canope. Canope came in two thousand sixteen with uh, a Canope and Nana, and Canope and Nana are, are has been our biggest song so far. I think like now the new stuff we're releasing might might get bigger, but. We met these guys from the US pretty recently who came and said, "You know, these these songs, some of these songs you wrote, are what we call hero hero tracks, and they have no promotion, no marketing, and they just keep on growing up and blowing up in new in, in new uh, territories constantly. Mm-hmm. And you can just see the the, the numbers on Canopy and then they're just like going up and up over the past four years.
0: Yeah, they're crazy and, on Spotify.
1: <laughs> exactly, they get a lot of algo algorithmic recommendation and, and stuff like that, and." Uh, so, so, yeah, we're lucky we, we did Dorothy. Well, we really, Dorothy, I think, was, like, an important song also because we really pushed our... It's a long song with a lot of parts, and we recorded with the, the girls who followed us on stage afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was two girls back then, Marguerite and Victoria. Marguerite is no longer performing with us, but Victoria is still, like, singing most of our songs and on stage with us. And um, so, yeah, first, uh, every EP was a little milestone. Cause mm-hmm. Gisole was the first time after revolta, we did some pop music and that was, I think, 2014, 2015, we come with, uh, Dorothy and we, I think do like a, a interesting left field disco club track, which is still one of our biggest tracks. And then after that *Canopy* and, and Nana were really defining for us in, uh, Really pursuing, yeah, we were, we were listening to a lot of Exotica back then and, like, our love of Brazil also transpires really in, in that record. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people related to that. Canopy is also a song about nature, the love of nature, and that's a very universal theme and with a kind of fresh angle on it. And for the French audience, for sure, they understood the lyrics and they really related to to the song on that level. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, yeah, we... You know, like it was a buildup. That was 2016, 2017. We released Caravel, and we start doing our first live performances. And we're with this tour uh, tour manager, uh, this um, this touring company called Super, which is like a French kind of indie indie project um, uh, tour manager. And um, yeah, it was we built. Right away we built our live show we, we sucked we were terrible but we you know <laughs> the visuals everything it was it was it was kind of hit and miss in the beginning because we had no idea what we were doing and we didn't have like these bigger than lives personalities also but um, yeah shortly but like slowly but surely we kind of we kind of uh, navigated through that and in 2018 we re-edited the album we added a few songs and universal music. Uh, Under the label, Caroline started distributing us. Uh So we still had our label, but we were distributed by Universal. And that really opened, I guess, the record. Like they opened some, activated some marketing on other territories. And and so that was preparing our tour in the U.S. in 2019, where um, kind of the idea, and we were already developing a bit. The U.S. was super, we did these tours where we were doing very small venues. We were carrying our gear. We are like, kind of like really grinding. Mm-hmm. But uh, we knew we had to do that, especially in the U.S., because it's a uh, it's a hard market to crack for a French band.
0: I was going to say, especially since you sing a lot of your songs in French, like to, to be able to achieve like Coachella or, you know, even the Cross Festival, the amount of people you're playing to. I know uh, Americans don't take uh, to it's They're like you said, they're a hard audience to capture, especially if you're not singing in English a lot of uh-huh. the time.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the music, like we make, to, we we consider uh, singing as sound. Like, like Brazilian just sounds good. Mm-hmm. I think Nana, no, no, a lot of the songs have Brazilian, the French in Canope, It's not only the lyrics, but it sounds good. You have these songs where the lyrics are important. You have these songs that, when you listen to the BGs, just the voice sounds good. It's a sound. It's not only. A, so you don't need to understand the sense of the track to to see that it's like you know it, it sounds so good. So we really consider. We try to make. Nice vocal harmonies, like nice vocoders and like subtle treatment of the of the voices. And at the end of the day, there's not that many, like Canopé is one of our big songs in French. But other than that, there is no big song in French. We, we had Coeur and song, but we don't play it on stage. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it feels really like, a, there's quite an international span. Like the, the album goes, you know, a lot of countries. It has Baccarat, which is in Africa. It has Kyrgyz, which is more like Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. So like... I think a lot of international audiences can relate. But indeed, the the American audience is a hard one to capture for an electronic music band. They're more like hip-hop and soul and folk, and they have this old, you know, this grassroots culture, different culture from the Europeans in terms of music they consume. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think we're right at the junction of, you know, they also like Daft Punk and, you know, they're interested. They like the Frenchies, they like Justice and so on. So, um, yeah, we we're we're lucky we're blessed the music just kind of like you know captured the audience and it built up we did a great coachella performance i think mm-hmm. the show is as is engaging and in that way it's quite american it's a performance mm-hmm. more it's like you know it's a poor so people were really dancing i thought compared to other shows i saw that were more static we're really you know getting people bouncing around like on jackie yeah. and like you know like dancing for for real mm-hmm. and so um, yeah that's that was um an important, um, uh, I'm not sure where I, I lost my track, but
0: no, yeah, no, I, yeah, you answered the question. Um, I'm, I mean, obviously this, the whole virus and, and, and COVID took a you know huge toll on everybody, but you guys are really, really building up, especially in the U S market. I mean, to play Coachella in 2019, that's huge. And then mm-hmm. I did see that you you were supposed to play like I read that you're supposed to play like Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles yeah. which is massive and all the shows got yeah get canceled like t- where were you guys at when when that all hit and like obviously it affected you directly but did that put like were you able to write this new record during the span of the last year and a half like where were you when coronavirus hit and how that affect the new the new album
1: Yeah I think um It was, well, for sure, like, Hollywood Bowl was, like, a real dream come true. Like, like the next really big thing is going to be our biggest show ever. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, we can, you know, that'll happen to us next year, but I think um, to be honest, we toured for three years. We worked really hard, and we were quite burnt out after the all the tours and the American tour. And we were supposed to release a record and then do all these summer shows, and I can't imagine how we could have, like, Finished the album correctly and integrated it into this new live shows, you know, that we were going to perform. Like it would have just been untenable and you need to take, you know, like you need a humane kind of rhythm. You need to like work really hard after a tour. You need to kind of like stop, stop for a bit. And then, Mm -hmm. so that's what happened. It was, uh, we kind of got lucky on our timing because we really had this time to do the album. It still felt like, you know, we're still under a lot of pressure to finish on time. We had all these, songs we started, we started maybe 30 songs during during the past years. And then like, so we were picking and choosing among them and trying to like pick the ones to to finish and release. But so what we did is we released the an, an EP, like the three of three tracks. Mm-hmm. And we released also uh, the mixtape with a lot of our edits, like a lot of our unreleased material came out in Home Sweet Home. And we thought, okay, this is like, this is kind of like a mini album. Like it's not chopped up. You can't listen to it on... But for fans, for the people who love it the most, they can hear a lot of, like, unreleased material from Poe on Pan on the mixtape.
0: That's amazing. And then the new and, record coming out in 10 days. Tell me about that.
1: Uh, Well, yeah, no, we're exci- excited. Like, the two, sing- two first singles are really picking up nicely. And the album, so Cyclorama, is uh, about the grand narrative is life cycles. We like to, you know, like, tell stories a bit about our, our records as Caravelle was like more like a trip through space. And this is more like a, not, not a trip, but like questioning different moments in life. There's a, um, the first song is a birth song for the Alex's son. And we have a requiem and we have some transcendent songs and we have some childhood songs. And like, And uh, yeah, we're also like kind of in the middle of our, of our lives. We had this moment with COVID where we could pull back and you know kind of like consider everything we've done up to here and um yeah just think about life a bit and um this record of course we're trying not to be prisoner of of concepts it's about music first thing and like a lot of songs uh, are we didn't make it like we didn't try to make it in order specific order saying okay there's the birth and like death is going to be the last song whatever okay we try to make it a nice musical experience but um um yeah it's a record we just we poured a lot of energy into it and uh so much that like you know just like two months ago when it's finished i you know i can't really listen to it and enjoy it anymore i was like you know i didn't i didn't know you're confused when you listen to a song like 150 hours you don't you know it gives you nothing anymore you can, or, or you just hear details that frustrate you and so on so uh i haven't been listening to it and i'm just listening to the singles that come out and seeing the reaction to people and that's been super gratifying now we're uh, we're excited. So we're going to have a, a summer where we're just going to be DJing and um, moving back into preparing our live show as of September. And mm-hmm. we announced the tour now. So we'll be touring. We'll start with the U.S. in December.
0: Yeah. Exciting.
1: And, and that's cool. I guess the pandemic was good to take this year off. And it's uh, for us and for the for the quality of the music, I think was was a great, great thing. I hope we can do it again. We can say, OK, like, let's actually take this time and not not, um, try to overdo it. You know, you need to take a break once in a while.
0: Sure. Sure. And I, I did see your tour dates. I mean, for you, I lived in San Francisco for a, a number of years working on the radio there. Um, and I saw your, you guys were playing Bill Graham civic. That must be a pretty cool moment. That would probably be a huge show for you. Have you ever played there before?
1: Um, you know what? No, I don't even know the the venue. I lived in San oh, Francisco. Really? But no, Bill Graham civic. I've never been there. It's a really? big, uh, no, never. No. I used to go to um, Mezzanine and oh yeah. the rickshaw stop, like, you know, those oh, sure. venues were the, the venues where the DJs, you know, like that scene was, was playing, but I never made it to those bigger venues.
0: So you must, it's, know really, my... it's,
1: the, it's the biggest venue we've ever played. So it's, it's exciting for us.
0: That's huge. I mean, that's, was the big electronic venue when I, when I lived up there, I mean, like Avicii would play there, Calvin Harris, like those are the artists that okay. would play it prior to, you know, playing the big uh, you know stadiums but like that's right. the the spot i mean yeah oh, that's cool that you played rickshaw stuff so I'm, sh- I'm sure you know my friend aaron axelson oh yeah yeah yeah. he's uh, a big I, supporter of the electronic music scene
1: yes yes rings a bell like it's been uh, it's been like now for 14 years i was there but, but uh the name rings a bell and like, i remember yeah there's a lot of a lot of cool people on the on that scene san francisco was yeah it was great back then i hear it so bit harder to move in right now for DJs like the scene is a bit it's a a bit harder to to get a living for an artist right now in San Francisco
0: sure sure yeah I lived there in 2010 and I was working on the radio there and the station I worked for we did this cool show at night and and like I came from San Diego where electronic music really wasn't a big big thing until like cross festival happened really I mean in 2010 it wasn't what it is now but San Francisco we did this thing called subsonic and it was a show that happened like at midnight to like three in the morning and it was all oh, wow. electronic music and dj together but it was it kind of fit with the with the lifestyle and what was happening there and, nice. and rickshaw stop and mezzanine those are like the big clubs that a lot of these artists came out of which was really really cool
1: yeah yeah and no, I, I have great memories of uh san francisco yeah one of my best friends is you know i'm I, I and haven't, i haven't been back in a while but uh, I'm sure it's changed a lot. So I don't want to like, I'd be depressed to not see the dive bars like two, 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 or like some of those small bars where I used to hang out a lot. I'm sure they're yeah. all gone.
0: I know. So, Unfortunately, uh, yeah. probably. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and thank you so much for, for doing this. This has been amazing. I really appreciate you taking time. To, You're very to welcome. Chat with I hope me. it
1: wasn't, too, uh, I hope it wasn't too confusing. My, you no. guys seemed a bit confused. Like I was confusing myself, but I've never done the mental process of going through these moments. And, uh I feel like yeah, it's it's an interesting story, but like there's so many bifurcations, a lot of people I didn't mention, and yeah, there was a lot of a lot of things. And I, I guess the, the thing the thing you can get out of this is you got to grind real hard when you have a passion. And some people get overnight success, and some for some people it takes a long time. But when you put in the the time and you have the passion, things can come together. And all that time that feels you feel maybe it would. You're losing your time. No, it's all time where you're ripening and you're maturing, and you're getting the experience that will, when they come out, in your music.
0: Yeah. That. Well, that's kind of the answer to my last question. I was going to ask you uh, before I let you go. Is if you had any advice for aspiring artists?
1: Exactly. Well, see, I got, I got you on that one. No, no, but for sure, like that. I think that was my, my trick. All well, my friends tell me, like, you know, that's. Uh, they were all surprised that I made it and that I made it. So, so it's not we're not like a massive project, but it's a great success. And it's a, like, it's picking up. And it's, uh, I think that's the strength of Paul and Penn. It's going to keep on picking up because it's built on a lot of, uh, a lot of previous experiences that gave us, give us the maturity, the drive and the energy and also the respect for what we're doing and for the audience and so on to, to do something worthwhile. And my objective is always, is always to do something that would uh, last. Uh, it was funny when I sat down with my psychologist when I was 18, just like, what's your goals? And uh, I said, I want to do something that will uh, outlast me when I die. That's my first goal in life. Wow. And she said, that's very rare. Like she said, that's pretty amazing. But most people want love or security or they want money, but they never say that. That's going to be like 10th down the list. And for me, it was very clear. That's something I aspire. I aspire to that, which can be a bit pretentious also. So she's like, you got to deal. You got to be careful. There's some ego in there. You got something to prove. Uh, Is it really worth it? Is life about that? Like, isn't life about enjoying what's happening right now? Is it about leave you know leaving something for what for you know? So um, yeah, I've been uh, dealing with those questions, but yeah, exactly. Like I've learned a lot to just enjoy the moment and try to make music about that. And it's not it's not Mozart what we're producing, but we're trying to produce something fun, engaging, and uh, maybe one or two songs will will last.